hello. Hi, John. How are you doing? Oh, hi, Dan. What's going on? I'm just sitting here, uh, getting uh, getting up to speed on the internet. Yeah. Here. What's what's going on today? Oh boy, <clears throat> the less I know, the better. Yeah. Okay. I really, really, really feel that way. Uh, you know, the a couple of days ago, I um, my phone announced to me that I had been looking at it for eight hours. Like eight hours straight? No, but eight hours in the course of the day. And um, and that I'd been averaging over seven hours a day of looking at my phone. And I realized that it was true what my phone was telling me. That you actually are on that much of the time. And um, I'd been feeling my my brain turning to mush <laughs> for a long time. Uh-huh. And as you know, I've tried this before, but I was like, basta, no more. Right. And so for the last three days, I've left my phone at home and from the morning to the night, didn't look at it. And, um, you know, I have that watch, so I get texts and I get phone calls. Right. And I think the watch... I think the phone is keeping track of the texts and stuff I send on the watch because mm-hmm. I think it adds up to the total at the end of the day. And then I look at my phone at night. You know, I come home and I lay in bed and I play my little card games and I look at Safari, mm-hmm. Google. Now, were you spending those seven hours at night, like in bed, like you're describing now? No, I would look at, I'd look at my phone all day long. You know, I was, I've become one of these people that pulls up to a red light, glances down at my phone, checks some things, right. listens some stuff, yeah. and the light turns green. You know, I've got, I'm not, I'm not a monster that sits there to green light looking at my phone, but I keep an eye on the, on the light. But, you know, looking at anytime I'm in a waiting room, anytime I've got three seconds, you know, look at my phone. And so, no, no more. And, uh, and it's been nice. It's been nice. The last three, the last three days, I've averaged about two hours a day looking much, at my phone. Much, much improved, huh? But I think, but I think that is also counting the amount of time I've been replying to texts on my watch. I wonder. It has to be. I wonder. I wonder. Anyway, that's my that's my current my current project. Okay. Not have my phone. Right. That's my that's my plan. I'm paying for a thing. I bought an expensive thing. I'm paying for it on a monthly basis. Right. And now I'm not going to use it. Right. I'm You're going gonna, to not use it. Going to not use it. Intentionally not use it. So we'll see how that goes. I'm excited to hear what you get going there. Yeah. Thanks. It's it feels important. It feels um, it feels important. Yeah. And this yeah. is something something potentially huge that's happening to you, and I'm I'm here for it. Oh, thanks, Dan. Uh-huh. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah. Not going to look at my phone. I woke up this morning and looked at it, but I was still in bed. So, you know, I don't want to get into this cheat day situation where it's like, well, technically I'm still in bed. Well, I can take it as far as the front hall. You know, I don't want to do that. No. want to be strict and say, is this a phone looking opportunity? No, it is not. Leave it. Right. Leave it. Leave it. And is it, is it, we've talked in the past about your Highly addictive personality. Yeah. 
Uh, do you think this will be a big challenge for you to steer clear of it or what? No, because I also have a highly, uh, highly like restrictive personality or like a, a highly developed capacity to refuse myself the, that which I most desire. Okay. So no, I'm going to have, so yeah, so no, I'm going to have no trouble at all, uh, making myself not <clears throat> enjoy or not having my phone. Mm -hmm. It's just the slip, the slippery slope of one of these days. Cause the, you know, we've talked about this before. The watch is, is 82% functional. Right. And so if it's a day where I'm expecting to get a lot of emails or something, if I say like, well, I've got to have my phone with me today, you know, then it becomes two days and then pretty soon I'm looking at for eight hours a day again. And I just can't do, I just can't do that. Yeah, don't, you can't, can't let that happen. No, no, you know, there's only so many hours in a day through, there are three chunks of eight and to spend, that's one third of your day looking at that, 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 that damn thing. I, I hear you, man. Ugh. Anyway. <clears throat> That's just a, that's just a small side note, small side note. Well, I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm glad that you're not, um, you're not going to be burdened mm. by it the way that you have been for a long time. I think that's, um, admirable and admirable yeah. quality. I like, I like to be stimulated. I like, um, I like to have the, the little, the little drop of L-Dopa. <laughs> you know, we we don't talk about L-Dopa anymore. Do you remember when when everyone talked about L-Dopa all the time? Uh, not really. Boy, L-Dopa was on everyone's lips. Was it? And now, I, you know, it's been, it's been two years since somebody said L-Dopa to me. I had some friends that had a band named L-Dopa. Really? Yeah, because it was, you know, it, it was that, very It was that current. trendy that it, you had to have a band name for it. It was. It was a, uh, it was... It was like ripped from the headlines. <laughs> yeah. Um, El Dopa, <laughs> the band El Dopa uh -huh. was made up of uh, a, a bunch of close friends of mine, former bandmates. Um, and they had a, uh, during that period, this is before the Western State Hurricanes when I was a band, in a band called the Bun Family Players. And, and I, in some ways that was the most Seattle period for me. Okay. I, I, I'd quit drinking and doing drugs. I had a band. I had a girlfriend. I had an apartment. My band had a practice space. These were all things that at 23 years old, I did not have a right. band, a girlfriend, an apartment, or a <laughs> practice space. Uh -huh. But now I was 27 and I had all those things. 26. You know, I had this like wealth of, um, sort of everything, I guess that I had imagined one needed to be happy in the world. Yeah. And, uh, I had a, I had a group of friends that lived together in a group house. It was, uh, it was the house immediately behind the bar, Ernie Steele's and Ernie Steele's got turned into a different bar called Eileen's <laughs> later. But this was the house directly behind it. Like when they would come out at night and throw all their bottles in the garbage can, it was just right underneath the living room window of this house. The house is still there. And uh, the people in the house, uh, uh, was like some component of them had this band El Dopa. And the drummer of El Dopa was the drummer of my first band, Chautauqua. 
So I was really <laughs> mobbed up with them. Yeah. And we, you know, we all hung out. And El Dopa got, they played a show. This is when we were playing shows for like 80 people. And we all went to each other's shows. And we all went to, you know, we went to shows constantly. And I don't remember what happened exactly, but El Dopa attracted the attention of the guy in Atlanta who was like the producer of the band TLC, maybe? That was a big, big name back then, huh? They were a super big name. Uh, they're from Atlanta, and they were on what, LaFace Records or something like that? Um, it was, let's see, Jermaine Dupree, maybe? It was, it was somebody <laughs> like, like that you're asking me as if, it was like, as if I have even the foggiest clue it about was some, any of that. Somebody from down in Atlanta that was working within a hip hop context who decided they were going to branch out, you know, they had a successful, but it wasn't, it wasn't Jermaine Dupree. Um, but, uh, maybe it was it salt and pepper. No, are they from Atlanta? I'm, uh, now I'm looking, now I'm looking it up. Uh, Next Plateau Records. No, that wasn't it either. And I don't think Salt and Pepper are from Atlanta. They're from New York. Anyway, <clears throat> this guy, and I'm, I'm going to remember his name. It was something like Marcus Marcus or something. He discovered El that, Wait, first, first name, same as the last? I, I, I think, or he had an interesting name, a name that like really stuck out. And at the time, it was a name that we recognized because he was a producer. He was, you know, he was doing hip hop and and R&B, but it was, you know, he was one of these these people that had made a name for himself because he'd come up with three or four different bands, and now he was, now he was looking for a Seattle band. He thought, you know, this is the way the music industry is going. Maybe I'll find a grunge band. And he's, I don't know how this El Dopa demo got into his hands, but El Dopa suddenly had somebody suddenly had a relationship with this label in Atlanta and they got flown down there. And this was the closest, this is the closest thing that, uh, of this kind that had ever happened to any of us. And it was during the time when you still felt, you know, I was 26. We had a, had a cool band. We weren't popular in Seattle, but we were popular with our friends and, and it still seemed like the world where you would just bump into somebody at an airport and they would sign your band and then you would be huge. Like that stuff seemed real. Still. Right. Right. And so El Dopa's flying down to Atlanta <clears throat> to make a record with the guy that, you know, that discovered Bell Biv DeVoe or whatever. <laughs> now, you know. And it felt like, yeah. And it felt like, uh, wow, it, you know, it's happening. It's happening to our friends. Yeah. And they went down there. Oh, oh, the other guy that was in El Dopa, the bass player of El Dopa was Chris Cornelia, who ended up being the keyboard player in the first version of the Long Winters. So all super connected. Uh, we were super mobbed up with one another. <laughs> 
So watching them go down there and they made a record. I think they made, or at least, uh, you know, they, they spent a couple of weeks down there re- recording, made this like major label record. And they said they were at this big, big studio down there, really fancy studio. And every time they came out of the room, you know, somebody like some major star would, would be out there just kind of hanging out. Um, but but all like hip hop stars, you know, it was always like uh, LL Cool J or somebody. But, but big big names. But just like they, you know, their story was just like we were really fish out of water, and everybody was looking at us like super friendly. But like, okay, you guys, like uh, grunge band, I guess. Wow, you know, Marcus Marcus is really you know he's really thinking outside the box here. And they were like, yeah, you know, label mates, what's up? What's up, Lisa Left Eye Lopez? <laughs> I have no idea if I'm getting the 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 culture of of this particular label correct. It might not have had anything to do with TLC, but this is how I remember it. And then uh, they flew home, and we kind of greeted them with open arms. And uh-huh. El Dopa was, you know, this was the era where Built to Spill was kind of the 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 band that we all emulated, but they were. They weren't that big. Built to Spill is, was pretty much Northwest regional. Nobody had heard of them outside of, of the Northwest yet, really. A little. And uh, El Dopa was not good. You know, they weren't good. They were as good as we were, but but that wasn't good either. You know, there's they had weird meandering songs, and I think they did a they did a cover of fight for your right to party but they weren't like a part a fun party grunge band they were all way too serious like super duper serious stare at the floor scream out your inner hurts uh-huh. <laughs> and a few months went by they're talking to their their new label in atlanta and then all of a sudden radio silence and they couldn't get anybody on the phone nobody would answer them you know nobody would answer when they called and, uh, and eventually I guess they got a message from, from, uh, the guy's intern or something that he's, he's taking the label in a different direction. And, uh, he thought, thought maybe, you know, grunge was it, but I'm, I'm sure what he did was listen to this album that this band had made and, and went, Hmm, I don't <laughs> see anything. I didn't, I don't know what I saw before, but I, but I don't see it now, but they wouldn't give the band the record. You know, it was the classic big time music business stuff. You guys made a record for us that we paid for, but it belongs to us. We don't want to release it. We don't want anything to do with it. Frankly, we're going to shit can it immediately, but you can't have it. And so El Dopa, which I mean, those guys had no money. They had no they had no shot of making a record on their own. Right. Not even a, they didn't have, even have 1500 bucks to go in and make a, a record in three days type of thing. Um, and so they'd made this big, you know, this thing they were super proud of, this big sparkling alt rock record that if they'd, if they'd been given the, the tapes and had come home and, and duplicated it, I mean, this was pre this was before a time when any band I know had ever made a CD themselves. The first bands, first Seattle bands who 
came out with an independent CD. I mean, I remember when the the first sort of independent CD pressing plants opened, and it couldn't have been before 1998 because the technology wasn't – you couldn't go buy a CD pressing plant. And by 1998, I think you it was – you could. You could have, you have your own at, in some little warehouse somewhere. So what they would have done is bring that back and and make tapes and sell tapes at shows, cassette tapes. But it would have been they would have been the biggest band on the scene if they'd had this professionally made record. And they could have probably when the reason they didn't get it from their Atlanta label is they could have taken that tape and gone and shopped it around to and they surely would have gotten a record contract from somebody on the on the strength of this really great sounding album that yeah. Marcus Marcus had paid for. So El Dopa went back to playing shows for 50 people on a Wednesday night, just like the rest of us. It's kind of depressing. Well, it was super depressing. I mean, it wasn't depressing for me because I've always had that quality that one admires so much in a, in a friend, which is that quality where I'm like, huh, you flopped, eh? Well, too bad. You know, like I'm not... I'm not the one that you come to cry on his shoulder. I don't have a ton of time for, um, cause I don't ask to cry on anyone else's shoulder. You know, right. I, I sit on these podcasts and I talk about my travails, but I don't want sympathy. I don't deserve sympathy. I don't mm. think. And I don't ask for it. I talk about it. I talk about it. I talk about my thoughts my stuff in real, the realest language I can, but my, you know, I do not want you to say sorry for your loss. Right. Take that stuff and save it. Save it's it for not you. you. It's not you. No, no. And so if you, you know, I think if you, if you like lose a child or if somebody dies, you know, you have, I will, I'm very capable of offering sympathy for those things. But if your band doesn't make it, you know, it's, well, I'll give you a little chuck on the shoulder, but like them's the breaks, you know, and my dad, my band, you know, I don't deserve anything more than a chuck on the shoulder, but it doesn't mean that when I run into Carl Newman of the new pornographers that I don't glare at him, even though I love him dearly, that I don't go, you fucker. And yeah, you know, I say that mostly because his songs are better than mine. <laughs> But in the case of El Dopa, I felt like, yeah, you guys did not become big rock stars because your songs are garbage. I mean, I can't be sad about it. Can't even be sad that you didn't get to be big stars because I don't want you to be big stars. How, how am I going to feel? But it was sad because El Dopa, you know, they limped along for a while, but that, that experience demoralized them. They went from nobodies that were fine. We were all fine being nobodies because, you know, if you played a show and you had 80 people and then the next time you played a show, you had 85 people, you felt like something was happening. And we were, you know, we had a scene. It was a shit scene. Nobody would have cared. But then they, then they were like, they did that thing like, bye everybody, we're going to the big time. And then to come back. Right, from right, right. Just, it's not like, hey, maybe we sort of kind of made it. It's more like, peace out, y'all, you suck. We don't have to deal with you anymore. 
Well, the worst instance of that was a band called Man Ray. I feel like I've heard of that. Maybe from you, you've told me about that. Yeah, those were the guys that they 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 had come ready to be big stars, and even in even in Seattle before anything had happened, they were already had a lot of swagger. You know, they that was the feather boa era of alternative rock, and they were you know it was before everybody had tattoos, but they had like. They had cool tattoos. They had gel in their hair. They wore sunglasses on stage and they had feather boas and they played, you know, they played glam rock. And, um, and they had, they had a, they had a following. It was not the same people that liked our bands at all. Like the people that came to see the Bun family players were wearing, uh, wool jackets that, that were wet from the rain. Right. Right. And did not put product in their hair and were mopey and man Ray attracted the people that did put stuff in their hair and cared a little bit about, you know, their, their jackets weren't wool. They were made of other materials, but we would play with them. We played with them several times because we had enough of a draw to be an opener for man Ray. Right. And I liked them. I liked them personally. Um, although they were, they were, you know, completely different culture and they got a big record contract during the real heyday of that stuff. And they went out and bought all new, very, very new gear, big, shiny and, and, and super nineties versions of it. Right. They didn't go buy vintage instruments. They showed up with like electric blue Les Paul's like bright, crazy nineties instruments that now when they show up in music stores, you're like, Oh, weird choice. Weird choice (laughs) Gibson to put like, you know, like hearts and spades and, and like Jackson Queens on a Les Paul. Like that's not, that's not eighties. That's not cool. That's not vintage. That's just weird. Right. But they had all that stuff, brand new, you know, uh, triple rectifier amplifiers and, you know, Galleon Kruger stuff, all this like tech stuff. And they actually said, I think maybe not from the stage, but they definitely had this like, thanks a lot, Seattle. We'll see you, you know, like look for us on MTV. We'll see you. We'll see you on the streets of Los Angeles. Um, and they like took off. They all moved they were going to the big time and then they did the same thing as El Dopa. They made a big, big record for universal or something. And the label decided they were going in a different direction or whoever the, that A&R guy was got fired and the Man Ray record got put on a shelf. And six months later they showed up back in Seattle, like booking shows playing their big guitars. And it was actually at a Man Ray concert that, I met Death Cab for Cutie because it was, that was the bill. Death Cab opened. By this point, it was the Western State Hurricanes for me. And we were in the second slot, you know, uh, main support. And then Man Ray at the top. And uh, yeah, very fateful. That was a very fateful show. You know, meeting Death Cab that night, uh, you know, had profound reverberations through the whole rest of my music career. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was most of the time when somebody says like, tonight's the big night. Like this is the big show. Everybody, 
you know, put on your game face because this show really matters. It never does. <laughs> it never does. You go play South by Southwest. You go play the big show at Irving Plaza or whatever. It never, that's not ever the thing or hardly ever. Is that the one where somebody walks up and hands you their business card and, that, and thus begins your career? It's always something like some main opening subplot for Man Ray at the at the sit and spin <laughs> and you watch the opener who are, you know, eight years younger than you and you go, what are those guys doing? And pretty soon it's pretty soon your best friends and that's the, and they're your, your best friend band for the rest of your career. It's weird. But what the hell is El Dope? It's some kind of, it was some kind of medicine that we took to cure depression back in the, Back in the days when nobody knew how to cure right. depression, I mean, isn't it, was, it? Isn't it short for uh, L dopamine? Yeah, L dopamine, something like that. And uh, dopamine is the thing that that makes you feel good when you when you feel yeah, good. Yeah, this was a was this a beta blocker or was this a, a, a reuptake inhibitor? No, it wasn't. It was some. It was good for people with Parkinson's disease. Um. Oh, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. That's that's, Im- yeah, that's important. You want that. That is. You want that. It does that, which is which is which is important. Yes. You got to have that. I remember it being really like front-page newspaper business uh El Dopa, but that was during a period when I would not take any kind of uh medicine. Right. When doctors would would recommend that I take medicine, I'm not even sure El Dope is a medicine. It's just a thing. Honestly, I I can I cannot speak with authority over what it is at all. Just that it was it was. It's not like El, it's not like the band El Dope named themselves that because it because it was, it wasn't like naming the band Aspirin, right? Like El Dope meant something to us, you know. It had something to do with with them. Uh, whatever illnesses we all thought we were suffering from. Yeah. 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 We would like to say thank you very much to keeps two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. That's the bad news. The good news is with today's advancements in science, you can do something about it. And that's what keeps us here to do. They offer proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss. Keeps us revolutionize the way men are treated for hair loss. You used to have to go to the doctor's office and get a prescription. And now thanks to keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get medication delivered to your home. There's no more waiting rooms. There's no more pharmacy checkout lines and you get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery all from the comfort and privacy of your own home prevention. That's the thing that's key. And their treatments really work. They're an up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss and the sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you will save. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps treatments. And you can find out why they have more five-star reviews than any of their competition. And nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just 10 bucks a month. Plus, a limited time, you can get your first month free right now if you're ready to do this and uh, stop the hair loss and maybe get some back, go to keeps.com slash roadwork, K-E-E-P-S, keeps.com slash roadwork. You'll receive your first month of treatment for free. 
pretty cool. Go try it out. Keeps.com slash roadwork. So with you, uh, you know, not like being in that scene, how are you able, that's something I've, I've often wondered, and you've talked about a little bit here, but you were in a scene that was the same scene that you'd always been in when it comes to drug use, drinking, smoking, and yet at least at this stage of your life, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, um, you know, you were, this was how you made your money, right? Performing and playing gigs as, as a musician, as a performer in general. How I'm, I made my money working at the magazine store. Oh, right. This, this was the era when bands would get 50 or a hundred dollars for a show. And when we would get a hundred dollars for a show, we'd high five each other. So yeah, you still, though, you, were, you were still in this community though, of essentially a easy access to drugs. And how did you like navigate that without, you know, getting, getting back into it? Does this go back to the same thing we were just talking about where you can, you can like deny yourself of things and, and no big deal or what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, not no big deal, but when I decided that I was, you know, done with, um, drugs and alcohol, I, I was in Alaska. I, that's where I, I got clean. And I remember being up there, you know, it took me a couple of months to shake it off. And then I said, I got to go back to Seattle and the consensus up there <clears throat> from the people I knew in, in, you know, my, my family and the, and the community I had there, uh, they were like, don't go back to Seattle. Like Seattle is, uh, is like a, a den of iniquity, right? You're gonna, you're gonna go back down there and immediately fall back into your old patterns with your old people. And exactly, be, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Be in big trouble. And I said, look, I can't, stay in Anchorage. I can't be an Alaskan right now because Alaska doesn't have a vibrant arts culture. Alaskan arts culture is, um, it, it, it tends toward kitsch. You know, most Alaskan art is about Alaska. If you're an Alaskan painter, you paint Alaskan scenes. <clears throat> and if you're an Alaskan playwright, your plays are about Alaska because the identity of the place is so strong. And the people up there want to consume and build an Alaskan mythology. So what you see in the art up there are a lot of bears and moose <laughs> and the northern lights and oh, gold nuggets and you know, uh, that type of stuff <clears throat> and whatever the music was, whatever the music scene was up there, it was just imitating, <clears throat> excuse me. It was just imitating the Seattle scene because a lot of the things that, that created the sound of Seattle were also true in Anchorage. I mean, all the, all the 21 year olds up there were also the product of divorced homes and, even, you know, even worse kind of teenage street culture. It's just, it didn't seem worse because Seattle was a lot punkier. Um, but 
but I said, look, I can't stay here. I have to go back and, and make my way, you know, um, as much as being sober now is important to me. I can't turn into somebody where that's the only thing I'm doing. Right. You know, I, I, it, <clears throat> there's no point in being sober if I'm just sitting around in Anchorage working at a sporting goods store being sober. I have to still try to, to be part of the world. Yeah. And so, you know, against all odds, and I think, you know, my parents threatened me with whatever they had to threaten me, which wasn't much, but, you know, at this point I was 50 days sober, had no money and no prospects, you know, no job, certainly no place to go back to. But I bought this one way ticket and I flew back to Seattle and I took the bus in from the airport with my little shoulder bag. And I went right over to this girl's house, uh, Nona, whom, or, you know, who I was dating sort of in the, in the last days, the worst days of, of my, uh, you know, my drug period and sort of knocked on her door and she had always been a responsible you know, there's that class of people that have, are capable of maintaining responsibility in the world. And then as their after work life, they really go into the seedy underbelly. Uh-huh. You know, the, it's the punk preppy thing or the, you'll, you'll, you'll meet them in, in work life. You'll, there's, you know, there's one girl in the office that, um, is wearing, you know, just slightly, uh, outre clothes as part of her work outfit, or she's got a piercing or there's some, there's some, she, she has some secret every once in a while you catch a glimpse of a tattoo up, uh, that you can see under her sleeve and you kind of realize like, Oh, she has a, you know, she has an alternative life of some kind. She doesn't just get off work and go home and watch episodic television with her boyfriend and her cat. She's doing something after work. And and sometimes they, those people will really surprise you. And it turns out that they are into S and M or they are, um, you know, or they're really tight with, with, um, outsider art. And so Nona was a person that I mean, she wasn't working a straight job, but, um, she, you know, she was the, she was the manager, let's say she was the, if she worked in a restaurant, she was the manager. If she was, if she worked in a cafe, she was the manager. Right. So I showed up at her house, which had always been a nice house. And for whatever reason, she had indulged me when I was, um, homeless, jobless, um, slouch. And I was like, hi, I really need a place to crash. Right. And she was like, welcome back. And so for the first few months when I landed back in Seattle, I was living with her. And she'd been my girlfriend when I was at my worst right. girlfriend, you know, girlfriend in quotes kind of. And uh, 
And she was very, you know, very gentle with me. I was sick a lot because I, you know, I was just like, I was all, I'd already been sick a lot, but I was, you know, sick. I was just kind of like getting all of that stuff out of my system. I hadn't been eating very well for a long time before that, just from lack of money, but also just lack of interest. So, you know, that was during a period when I would go to meetings all the time. I had a hard, very hard time finding a job. Struggled, you know, I would go, go get a job at a place and work there two days and just be like, no. Because like a lot of people at that time and at, and suffering from those same maladies, I believed that I was too good for just menial work or, you know, I was too good to be at a regular American. But I knew I had to stay straight. And honestly, I didn't have anywhere else to go besides bars, bars and cafes. So I would go sit in the cafe all afternoon. I had a little spiral notebook. What I would were you sit doing? Just writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just write and write and write. Memoirs page page, or what? Page page. Oh, I tried everything. You know, mostly essays, but just trying to get my thoughts out on mm-hmm. paper. And a lot of the, a lot of it's unreadable um, because I'm, you know, I'm flipping in and out of these different, uh, flipping in and out of not just different ideas, like different, the, like the essay had different ideas, but trying to have different, I mean, different ideas about what writing is, what good writing is. And so I would try different tones, never different personas, but, but different. Sometimes I would be more, you know, be more emphatic, more aggressive. Sometimes I would be more contemplative, but I would just scribble. I would just write and write and write and write and write, filling up these spiral bound notebooks. But then at night I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any people that weren't in bars. Right. And I would go, I would go to the bar. I would sit there at the bar and smoke cigarettes and talk to my friends. And as the night wore on, they became less and less interesting. And that was my first glimpse of like what it's like to be around drunk people when you're not drunk. Oh yeah. Not very fun after about nine 30 at night. So then I just went out. I just wandered the streets and my first real friend was this guy named Peter cars. I still know him. And he was a very depressed, moody, artistic, a handsome, uh, sort of outsider character, glamorous for, for uh, glamorous by virtue of being like completely unreachable by anyone. And for whatever reason, and it was, and he lived in that house, the house behind Ernie Steele's. And I knew I had I knew people in that house because, uh, because I'd played in, in the band Chautauqua when I first moved to Seattle with the drummer, Brian. So I, and this house was kind of right in the center of Broadway. So I would go by there and Peter lived there and he and I just immediately glommed onto each other. One of those situations where it's just like, Whoa, I have a new best friend. Right. But Peter didn't really drink or smoke 
or do drugs. I mean, he drank like he had a beer. And most of the people in that house also like would have a glass of wine mm-hmm. or a beer, but were not drug abusers and they weren't alcoholics. And one of them was, um, but it was my first experience as a, as a adult, as someone above the age of about 17, a first instance of people that I, that I, that I liked, that I admired, that I felt a kinship with, that just didn't have drug abuse and alcohol abuse as a part of their culture. Right. They were, they were artists, you know, they were, they were making art and were living in that early nineties generation X super creative impassioned time, just not getting high. Right. And it blew my mind. What? Like, who are these people? And so I threw myself in with them and was able to, you know, I started being able to interact with people that weren't just sitting at the bar talking about the play they were going to write. (laughs) They were writing the play. Yeah. And, and I watched people write a play, perform it for five nights in a small black box theater for, you know, 15 people a show. And then the play was done and they threw it away or they, you know, they put it in a box and they started working on their next play, which was very different from the alcoholic crowd and the way that they talked about art, which was, I'm going to write the play that changes the world and I'm starting it tomorrow. The idea in the alcoholic culture is that you're going to do when you finally make something, it's going to be incredible. And that's part of the reason that you can't start it is that it's, you don't quite have the, the thing that's going to change the world yet. And so as soon as you get it, watch out world. Um, and watching working artists who are just like, well, I made a thing and I did it and now I'm starting the next thing was transformative for me. It did not transform me because I still, even now, suffer from the idea that I can't start working on a thing until it's, until it becomes an amazing thing that's going to change the world. Right. Um, and I've never, I never was able to be one of those people that just went from creative thing to creative thing. I mean, playwrights and actors just, just blow my mind because they work just as hard on a play as you would on a record album but it really leaves no record behind except in the memories of the people that were lucky enough to see it. And that's like crazy for a musician to think about, even though, you know, every show we play is equivalent to putting on a play. Uh, at least you have an album, you know, you made an album and people listen to it. They, people that will never see the show, listen to the record. But Peter and I, we, we would go out and walk all night, rain pouring down. I would be smoking and we would talk about art and life and the end times. <laughs> and we were both very dark, but, but in finding a, a, um, 
a shared spirit in somebody else, you know, it was a great comfort to me. And I think it was to Peter because we just sought each other out. And in fact, at some point along the way, someone bought me a beeper. I don't, I don't remember who, but some one of my friends was like, look, I'm tired of not being able to get in touch with you because, you know, I didn't have, you, you could call the Espresso Roma and leave a message for me. And it was almost certain I would get it because I went there every day. And then later you could call the Cafe Septiem or you could leave a message there at the counter and I would get it. But some friend of mine was like, I'll pay for your beeper. And I don't, it might've been Peter. It might've been Laurel. Somebody gave me this thing and I carried it around for a while and you know, it would beep and then you'd go to a phone and call the number and there'd be a message for you. Um, but, uh, but that lasted, I think it was probably close to a year before I had my own apartment. And I, I crashed at Nona's for a while. And then the house behind Ernie Steele's, I started sleeping on the couch there in the living room. And eventually the people that lived there were like, you can't sleep on the couch. <laughs> but there was an alcove at the top of the stairs, just a place. There were bedrooms on both sides, but it was just, you came up to the top of the stairs, you went, turned around, um, the railing and on the, at the back end, you know, there was a dormer with a window that let light into the stairs and it was about four feet deep. Uh, and somebody hung a curtain, like a, maybe a shower curtain across that four foot alcove. And if I went in there with a sleeping bag, I could sleep and all you would see was my feet sticking out <laughs> into the hallway. And somehow, for some reason, the people that lived in that house, which at that point I think was called the Eldopa house, uh, they tolerated <laughs> me sleeping. I love that it was called the Eldopa house. Yeah. Even though, <laughs> even though Julie lived there and later Laurel lived there and I think, you know, uh, Derek Chamberlain lived there, none of those people were in El Eldopa at all, but but enough members of the band, and I think the band practiced in the basement. But so I slept in that alcove for a long time before the people at the Eldopa house, and by that time I think I was dating, like Nona had kicked me out. I think I started dating Laurel at that point. And they were like, you can't stay here anymore. You've just been at the top of the stairs for too long. You're the man at the top of the stairs, and you're not, you know. <laughs> You're, you're really not bringing as much to the community as you're, as you're taking. And I was like, I totally understand. And at that point, I think, you know, six months, I'd been sober for six months. I think a lot of the people in my life were like, you got to get a job one day and also an apartment one day. Cause I was doing work, you know, I worked in a, worked in a warehouse. I worked in a, you know, I got these little odd jobs. I went to a temp agency and I said, put me in anything. And so, and I could type, I could type pretty well. So they gave me these little jobs, you know, three days here, two days there. I worked for that temp agency for a while and I, I liked it, you know, because it, because you could go in and say like, I don't want to do anything for the next few days. And they're like, whatever, we'll put you in thing when, when thing comes up. 
But it was then that I had to go over to, to Kevin's house. Kevin was living with David Brust at that point. Both guys I had gone to high school with. David Brust was the ended up being the boyfriend of Kelly Kiefer, my my high school girlfriend. When she and I broke up, she started going out with David Brust just to infuriate me. Mm. That's typical of, of her. And he, he was extremely handsome. He was one year younger than us in, in grade. He was an 11th grader and we were seniors. But he and I had the exact same birthday. We were both born on the same day. Not a year apart, but we were the same age. It was just that his parents had held him back before going into kindergarten and mine hadn't. And frankly, I wish that mine had, but it was an indignity. It was an indignity that he was an 11th grader. It was an indignity, even though we were all the same age, he was an indignity. It was an indignity that he was handsome as he was. He was also GQ, which was a term we used then that oh, yeah. he's now, he was very GQ, which mm-hmm. meant he wore a guess watch <laughs> on the outside of his shirt. He like, he put it on his on the his cuff instead of on his wrist. He rolled his cuffs back. He you know he wore penny loafers. He was the wrong kind of preppy. He was the he was the gaudy kind of preppy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, David had ended up living with Kevin, and David was growing weed in the basement. And this was extremely complicated for me because I was living in the house with my two high school buddies and one of them had a pot growing operation in the basement, like a full on one. And you know, that had always been, as I said at the time, you know, I never went to jail for smoking pot. It was alcohol. that was the problem. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I didn't succumb to any kind of temptation. I took a real interest in the grow operation just from a, you know, kind of a, um, what would you call just a sort of, uh, it was more than a polite interest. I took a, I took a kind of proprietary interest in it. Yeah. And I think, you know, and David was not really from Seattle. So I actually made some connections for him. I went out to the people I knew in the community that were on the buying side and David was on the selling side and I put them together. Which now I think about it, you know, because I had always had a prohibition on dealing drugs. That was never a thing that I was willing to do, even when I was doing them a lot. And it would have made sense, although you're not supposed to do both things. Is that like a rule, an unspoken rule? or is Well, don't get high on your own supply. You know what I mean? Because you're not going to make money if you, do, if you use your own product. Um, you're going to sell it to people and then whatever you would have used to make ri- to make yourself rich or even to buy more, what well, just goes into you. And then you're, I mean, then you're just a drug addict, right. but it wasn't, but that wasn't my issue. My issue was that morally I had a, a compunction against, you know, and I, I, um, I just would not sink so low. And there were a lot of people I knew that were sort of high class drug dealers that, you know, that only sold mushrooms and LSD, for instance, and they could Were those considered high class class drugs? but, But they felt confident that they weren't selling narcotics. I see. And so they maintained a kind of moral code 
where they're like, look, man, I don't, you know, I don't sell drugs. I sell these spiritual um, facilitators. Well, it's all just a big shit show, you know, because of course then, then MDMA comes along or MDA came along. And uh, so now what do you do? Like is ecstasy a narcotic or is it a, is it a spiritual mind opener? And if you call it a mind opener, then you're selling MDA and you're, and it's very much a narcotic, you know, what's or the difference between a, MDMA and MDA? The first one I heard of was MDA and the, and that was ecstasy. And then kind of like attention deficit disorder turned into attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Right. MDA inexplicably turned into MDMA. And I don't know whether they just added an M because they forgot before or whether it was a different <laughs> chemical. Okay. It performed the fa- same function culturally. Right. On. Uh, and then somewhere when I wasn't paying attention in what I consider to be fairly recent times, it started being called Molly and I don't right. have no idea why ecstasy was a perfectly great name. That was much more uh, evocative of what the drug did than Molly. And for a long time, people were talking about Molly. And I was like, is this a new thing? Is this like squeak? Like somebody invented a new drug? And then later on, somebody just explained like, no, it's ecstasy. I don't know why they call it Molly. I was like, oh, all right. Well, people, you know, go on with your bad selves. No one ever named LSD anything but LSD. You know what I mean? It was, you you could have called it anything you wanted, but it was lysergic, dia, whatever, methide. And, um, and that was always what it was and still is. But so then I was living at Kevin's and David's on the couch. And by this point I had a band, Kevin and I had a band, the Bun Family Players. And we practiced in the basement of Kevin's house. So this was the problem because we were practicing down there. And when you're at this age, you, your band practices five nights a week. You know, it was all we had to do was play. And then I would just hang around, hang out after, after practice and we'd sit and smoke cigarettes and watch TV and then everybody else would leave and I would, and the other guys would be like, okay, we're going to bed. And I would go, okay, good night. And then I would sleep on the couch. And, um, and this was a period where, you know, I was like, they would go to bed and I would go into the cupboard and I would go to the, wherever the cans were, you know, like the canned food. Yeah. And I would go to the very back of the cupboard and pull out the can that had been in there the longest. Cause in the, in everybody's pantry where the cans are, there's always a can that gets lost back there. Sure. You know, think can of ravioli that that just is behind the green beans because it's been in there a year. And so I started to eat the canned stuff that they, that I thought they wouldn't miss. And I'd been doing this for years on the drug side because if, you know, if you left me alone with your bong, I would get into it and scrape the resin out of the stem and smoke the resin. And in that way, I was able to stay high, um, get high every day without ever having any money to buy pot because I was, you know, effectively stealing the, the resin out of people's pipes. Now 
I think most dedicated pot smokers are aware that they are storing up resin in their devices and they're saving it for a rainy day. And so I think probably a week later when somebody was out of dope and was like, oh, I'll just scrape my pipe. And then they go in there and they're like, huh, seems like there should be a lot more in here than there is now. But it was a, it was an extremely low level crime, but I'd been living that way for a long time. The, 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 the scam I used to pull that I've, I think I've described before, which is I'd go into a bar and I'd wait till the bartender wasn't looking and I'd grab a pint glass, a, a clean pint glass off of his stack. And then I'd just walk around the bar with this empty pint glass and strike up conversations with people. And the presumption. If so you, just, it, you had just finished your drink. That's right. Uh, I'd bought a beer and then I just finished it and I hadn't gone back and gotten another one because I was so interested in this conversation we were having. And it was, you know, the culture of being in a bar, particularly one where beer is sold in pitchers, is when everybody's glass is empty, you pick up the pitcher and you fill up everybody's glass. Right. And it's just the assumption that particularly back then in happy hour, pitchers were five bucks. You throw five bucks down and, and, uh, and then you fill up everybody's glass and then when it's time for a new pitcher, the next person goes and gets it. Well, when it was getting to be my turn to fill up a pitcher, I would, or to get the next pitcher, I would see somebody across the room and I'd be like, excuse me, you guys, I'll be right back. And I'd walk over there and I'd talk to my other friend. I'm a very social person. And I'd hang out over there until, until they filled up my glass. And it was not, it was not completely usurious. Like I, like I make it sound, you know, I was actually extreme having a great time and, and we were having great conversations and these were all friends and they all knew what I was doing. Like that and everybody in the, at the comment knew I didn't have any money. But I think the consensus was like every once in a while it costs you a beer. Uh, when I come around, nobody ever really pulled the curtain down and confronted me and said like, no beer for you moocher. Because I brought, you know, I brought a lot to the event is kind of the way I justified it. Made it fun in there. But I did feel like I was trading on my personality in a way, you know, like selling it one beer at a time. (laughs) And that started to feel like kind of the, you know, kind of like, like I was a stripper in a way, you know, that I was. That I had a thing, I had a gift, which was the gift of, of, um, conversation and I was funny and I was friendly Mm -hmm. and in exchange for that, you just had to give me a beer every once in a while. But that didn't, that's, it didn't start feeling very good to me. It felt like I was exploiting a talent and for really low wages we would like to say thank you very much to the HMA VPN. This is a VPN that you can count on. Let me first tell you what a virtual private network is and why it's so important. I use VPNs all the time and HMA makes a really great one. It's so important that you use one of these guys. I'm telling you, I am telling you the benefits are tremendous. Basically a VPN lets you surf the web anonymously and securely from anywhere with no restrictions. So here's a perfect example. You go to a, uh, a Starbucks or any other coffee shop for that matter, 
and you would get on their Wi-Fi or you're at the doctor's office, right? You're waiting for your appointment because they're always two hours behind or you're at an airport or you're at an office that you don't normally work at. You're at a co-working space. You're, you're anywhere where you think the network is not 100% secure, okay? And that's most places. Why? Because there are tons of ways that hackers can use methods to intercept your traffic, to monitor what you're doing. Maybe the, the coffee shop itself is evil, an evil coffee shop, and you don't want your traffic monitored. You don't want what you're doing observed or worse, your identity stolen. This has happened to so many people that I know. Now they use VPNs, doesn't happen anymore. Basically, here's, here's the way that this works. Oh, and, and by the way, the, one other thing, you can watch stuff anywhere you go. There are people I know who like to watch TV shows and they want to stream them and they can't because they're visiting a different country or something like that. You can get around that with a VPN, all of this stuff. And it makes you anonymous. That's the other thing. Nobody can trace or track what you're doing. It completely anonymizes everything. Isn't that awesome? And, uh, and, and these are just some of the things a VPN is useful for. HMA is the largest VPN service. They offer the most server locations worldwide. They cover 190 countries, but they're not in Antarctica yet. Sorry about that. What that means is that there is always a server nearby. That means you're going to be surfing fast. They do not log your IP address. So there's no way for anyone to know what you do online. They don't even log it. And they've got, uh, for the nerds out there like me, it's 256-bit AES encryption. It ensures your connection is safe and sound. You can connect five devices simultaneously. It works on all platforms, Android, iOS, Windows, Mac, Linux, routers. And they've completely redesigned it to be simpler and more fun to use. They've got uh, some, a speed test built in that'll show how fast their servers are. They've got something called split tunneling. So you can choose what gets sent to your secure VPN and what doesn't. That's very important too. What if you're playing a game? You don't care if, game, if your Minecraft server, who cares about that connection being private? That doesn't matter. But you, like, you don't want your banking stuff going over the public network, right? You get to make those choices. All this is built in. And uh, you can try this with a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. And here's the best part is their domain name. HMA stands for Hide My Ass. It's www.hidemyass.com slash offer dash five by five. They invented that uh, URL there, offer dash five by five. I did not invent that one. I would have had to be roadwork, but I don't care because it's a good company and they're sponsoring the show and you should really try them out. Hidemyass.com slash offer dash five by five to get a 30 day money back guarantee. Go try it. I think you'll be happy you did. Well, eventually Kevin, who was, who had been my best friend in high school and who played in the Bun Family Players, said, you cannot sleep on my couch anymore. You've been sober almost a year. You need to join the world, get a job, get your own place. And it just felt like that was the transition I had the hardest time doing. I hadn't, I hadn't touched drugs or alcohol in nine months at that point. Wow. And I was, I had a band. I was a member of an arts culture. I had a girlfriend who was a great girlfriend. I just couldn't get my head around 
having my own place and having a job and having like a, a key ring and places to be. But my friends had run out of patience. And I think part of it is when somebody's clearly like drunk all the time and a drug addict, there's a lot of people don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So they end up being somewhat sympathetic. Uh, even though they want you out, <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't know how to say so without, um, you know, impoverishing you. Nobody wants to kick you out in the rain in the middle of the night. So what Kevin did was he, Kevin had a Ford Aerostar, the, the first minivan. And he'd driven it around the country. He'd used it up. The thing was busted. We hardly ever used it. He walked to work, you know. It was parked in his carport. And he said, I'll run an extension cord out to the, to the battery so you'll have lights. And you just, you have to move out of the house. You have to move into the Aerostar. Oh, so he wasn't, he wasn't really like kicking you out as much as he was saying, you just can't do this physically, literally physically right here. You can't be on my couch every morning and every night because right. it's my couch. It's where I want to sit you know, on my own couch. You know, it's a two bedroom house, a tiny house. It's not like I was on the couch in the basement. I was right in the center of the house. And also I slept till 11. You know, I was on the couch. It's not like I mean, when they woke up in the morning to get ready to go to work, I was like, Ugh on their couch, you know, hiding under the blanket when they turn the lights on. Uh, but the key element was you move out to the, to the, uh, Aerostar, but you can't use the house while we're gone. They started locking the house. So I couldn't go in in the morning, use the bathroom, uh, use the kitchen, hang out there. So the exile into the Aerostar was very definitely, and in a way, genius, Kevin's genius, which was, I'm not kicking you out. I'm providing you with a, a roof over your head. It's just a minivan in the carport, and that's it. <laughs> and I had, you know, I had my sleeping bag and a pillow in there, and I made the mistake of deciding at that point that I was going to read, what did I, what did I read? Somebody, because, I, you know, I, I I'd always been a voracious consumer of books, but the books were always one other people's cast offs, right? Somebody would finish a book and they would save it for me. And when I came around, they'd be like, here, you know, here's a book. And in that way, I kept, I kept in books all the time. And somebody had given me interview with a vampire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And rice. And so I read that in the minivan. And then I went into this, like, I'm now I'm reading vampire books or horror books, right. Stephen King books, but I'm living, I'm living basically outside, you know, like I'll at, when it was time to go to sleep, I would just close the, Oh, because the only way I could get the light to stay on in the minivan was by keeping the back door slightly ajar. So I'd lay back there kind of breathing the night air. And then when it was time to go to sleep, I would close the door and the lights would go off. Well, then I'm laying in my little carport with the rain coming down, thinking about vampires all of that eventually, what ended up happening was Bethany 
bumped into me on the street and she said, I have a friend who's looking for a house sitter. And I, my ears perked up because this had always been like kind that's of a dream. That's the dream. I was going to say that, that, that's your, that's the ultimate dream for you. And I was like, tell me more. And she said, it's this, it's this guy, Jose. He's uh, from Argentina and he's moving to Heidelberg to go to the university of Heidelberg for like six months. And he needs somebody to look at his, look after his place. And I was like, introduce me. So Bethany introduced me to Jose and I recognized him. He was a diminutive, uh, Latin man. And I knew him because at some point along the way, I had kind of uh, back when I was drinking and, and doing drugs, I had posted up outside of a gay bar on Capitol Hill that was also a Chinese restaurant. It was on the north end of Broadway. And it was, you know, your classic Chinese restaurant, but it was also like a gay bar. And I used to sit out front of it, like on the sidewalk, because it was a fun sidewalk scene. And I would sit there and, you know, bum cigarettes. And um, I had a lot of friends in that community and people would like sneak drinks out to me. Not that I couldn't have gone in, but I could, it was, it was a thing. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always welcome in a bar. Oh no, no, no. You know what it was? I had gotten my ID taken at some point, some situation where I'd had to put my ID somewhere. And then at the end of the night, they were like, okay, well you owe us $700. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, because you, you know, you did this, that, and the other. And I was like, oh, I didn't think those, I didn't think you had to pay for that. And they were like, are you serious? And I was like, well, I can't pay you. And they said, we're keeping your ID. And I was like, I hope you choke on it. But during that whole last period, I think maybe even the last year of my drinking, I didn't have ID. I didn't have a, I didn't have a state ID. So I couldn't just go in anywhere. I could only go into bars where they knew me and not just they knew me, but whoever it was that was checking IDs knew me. And you know, that's a job that rotates. So I had to really know the bar and there was, there were enough of them clubs and bars, you know, like three of the rock clubs and probably five bars in the city that I could go into and, and have that like norm kind of thing. <laughs> right. Yes. But there were lots of other ones, including like the kind of the cooler ones, like the cloud room and places like that. Um, the frontier room even where they just didn't know me. I mean, the frontier room was a, was a legendary kind of rundown grunge bar. And I only ever drank in there a couple of times and because it not having ID, it didn't mean that I wouldn't go try. Um, and sometimes you get in, you know, sometimes there's nobody at the door or sometimes they just wave you through, but. But, um, but I, you know, I was confined to a, to a small world by not having ID and I couldn't get in to this bar, but it was a fun scene. You know, it was fun out front and it was, and people would sneak me drinks. 
under their coat. Anyway, Jose, I knew him from the front of this, from the sidewalk scene out in front of this bar. And he had, he had come on to me several times as a kind of, in one of those like reverse situations where he was a little bit older. And even though he was like five foot one, he kind of came on to me with a, with a daddy vibe, you know, like come with me, little boy. (laughs) And I was like, well, you know, I'm sort of like more just into being a sloppy pile of dirty clothes out in front of this bar, but it's very generous of you. And he was like, Oh, you don't know what you're missing. And so this was the same Jose, but by this point I was all, I looked completely different. I was all cleaned up. I was, you know, Mr. Um, Mr. Like post grunge or whatever. Right. right sure. He didn't recognize me. That's so funny. And he was going to Heidelberg because he was getting his PhD in, romance languages or something. And he had this wonderful one bedroom apartment right off of Broadway on uh, 10th Avenue East on the ground floor of this very genteel building that was full of uh, rich white girls. And I rented it from him for, for an affordable price. And I, you know, I was still temping but all of a sudden I had this furnished apartment. I had a life. I had a life. I had, a, I had a place. I, you know, I went to the thrift store and I bought a lamp <laughs> and, um, and now people could come visit me and my friends just rejoiced. You know, I had, and I was, I mean, Dan, I was 27 cause I, I was 26 when I quit drinking. Mm -hmm. I just turned 26 and I was, you know, full on 27 by the time I put all this together or if not, then it was, you know, within weeks of my birthday on either side. And there I was. And then pretty soon I got a job at the magazine store. And what was wonderful was Jose kept writing me letters. Like he'd, you know, I'd get a letter from him every couple of months. Things are going well. I'm going to stay in Heidelberg a little longer. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up subletting me that house, uh, that apartment for like a year and a half because he kept getting extensions on his visa to continue his studies in Heidelberg. And it was just devastating when he finally, when I finally got that letter where he said, I'm coming back, I'm coming back and I want my apartment back. So, it was really Jose and you know, the, I was still friends with Peter, like Peter and I had a relationship where I left a window unlocked in my apartment and Peter would come in through the window at any hour of the day or night if he needed a place. Because at that point I think maybe he had lost his, he didn't, he never, no longer lived in the El Dopa house. And it was really success that drove Peter and me apart Peter had a band called Bugger the King (laughs) and the Bun family players were starting to, you know, were starting to sell 150 tickets or whatever. And we, and we were sharing a a practice space with Peter that Peter had built. And then Peter decided he was going to live in the practice space. 
And we were like, what are you talking about? You can't live in the practice space. We're all using it. And he was like, I built it. And it's now it's my apartment. We were like, it's a garage. It's a garage behind a funeral parlor. How in the hell is, are you going to live here? But he kitted it out. He put windows in it. And then he started to get weird about us practicing there. And I was like, you can't get weird about that. A practice space is worth its weight in gold. You can't yeah. kick us out of our practice space. It's the, you know, it's, this is the whole center of our universe. And he was, he got weirder and weirder and weirder. You know, no, you can't be here during these hours because this is the, you know, this is my dinner time and I want to cook my top ramen on a hot plate here. You're like, you're kicking us out from seven to nine. You're like, you're just trying to get us. And then we found our own practice space. But really in that, in that conflict, like Peter and I never, we never got, we never came back from it. From the. Like you were never, the friendship was never restored. Never the same. We, 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 we continue to call each other, you know, run into each other. He used to do work for my mom, but, uh, but some, and you know, and we love each other is the thing. Peter and I like, there's a love there, like a deep emotional love that, right, pre- right. that kind of prevents us from just being like high five and friends that used to be closer. Yeah. It's uh, everything is always fraught. It's like being with an ex-girlfriend that where neither of you are really over it. You can't just hang out. No. And it's the same with me and Peter. Whenever we are with each other, there's just that kind of like, how are you doing? And, um, so, you know, it remains like, I mean, what was that more than 20 years ago? And it's sort of still like, I don't know, weirdly like still an open wound. 